Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. If you like what you hear, please follow us and leave a kind review. It really helps. This episode is about Amber Mary Bray, who, along with her boyfriend, Jeffrey Glenn Ayers, murdered her mother. It all started with some love letters they shared between them. So we thought we'd start with some love letters, too. A love letter saying, I miss you. Since I left you, I have been constantly depressed. My happiness is to be near you. Incessantly, I live over in my memory your caresses, your tears, your affectionate solicitude. The charms of the incomparable Josephine kindle continually a burning and a glowing flame in my heart. When, free from all solicitude, all harassing care, shall I be able to pass all my time with you, having only to love you and to only think of the happiness of saying so and of proving it to you. Napoleon to Josephine. A love letter saying, I am faithfully yours forever. Though still in bed, my thoughts go out to you, my immortal beloved. Be calm, love me today, yesterday. What tearful longings for you, you, you. My life, my all, farewell. Oh, continue to love me. Never misjudge the most faithful heart of your beloved. Ever thine, ever mine, ever ours. Beethoven to his mysterious, immortal beloved. Might have been his sister-in-law, Joanna von Beethoven, or possibly the diplomat's daughter, Antonia Bertano. No one knows for sure. A love letter saying, I am yours. I miss you even more than I could have believed, and I was prepared to miss you a good deal. So this letter is really just a squill of pain. It is incredible how essential to me you have become. I suppose you are accustomed to people saying these things. Damn you, spoiled creature. I shan't make you love me any more by giving myself away like this. But, oh, my dear, I can't be clever and standoffish with you. I love you too much for that. Too truly. You have no idea how standoffish I can be with people I don't love. I have brought it to a fine art. But you have broken down my defenses, and I don't really resent it. Vita Sackville West to Virginia Woolf A Love Letter from Hell What do you think of this? I'll take my brother to a movie and someone breaks into the house and kills Amy and Mom. I come home to discover them, call the police, neighbors hear nothing, and it goes on the record as an unsolved homicide. Have I snapped? Plotting murder and stuff? Amber Mary Bray to Jeffrey Ayers Ring around the rosy A pocket full of posies Ashes, ashes We all fall down (laughs) Before we get started, the listeners advise that this episode contains instances of murder, betrayal, coercion, and one or two bad words. Please use discretion when listening. So, how did we end up with such a horrific love letter? Let's start at the beginning with Amber's parents. Dixie Lee Hollier, aged 42, was beautiful inside and out. She had long brown hair and a big smile that could light up any room. 
At the time of her death, she was a record executive at Warner Brothers, but she didn't start there. She started as a clerk typist in 1982 when Amber was about four years old and Amy was around one. This would have been right after Dixie and Tom separated. Five years later, she became the coordinator of special projects in the international division. She had been a manager for the past three years. Before she was managing large brands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, she was a dreamer. She wanted love, happiness, and a little family she could share it with. She met a man who played the trumpet for a band called Evergreen Blues and fell in love and they got married. His name was Tom and he played the trumpet. They had two daughters, Amber and Amy, but their marriage was falling apart as Amy was being born. So Amber was the older sister? Yes. Okay. Dixie and Tom separated when Amber was three and Amy was one. At that point, Dixie was thrown into the role of head of household even though the actual divorce took place four years later. Tom moved to Las Vegas, but he stayed in touch with Amber and Amy through phone calls and visits. In 1991, Dixie added a baby boy, Benji, to their family. Benji never knew his dad, though. He was just happy to have a mom and two sisters. Dixie and Amber had a very close relationship, according to Dixie's workmates. Amber would drop by the office to say hi or go to lunch. Additionally, Dixie would bring all three kids to the studio film screenings. Family, friends, and neighbors all say that Dixie loved her children fiercely and often sacrificed her own interests for them. No one except Amber's boyfriend, Jeffrey, had heard tales of abuse and neglect. No one reports anything that even resembles abuse, with the exception of the shouting that the neighbor reported. I think sometimes suddenly having a lot of conflict with your kids is one of those signs that parents don't notice. Maybe because we always say, oh, it's normal to fight with your teenagers. But these kind of screaming matches should be a red flag that there's something seriously wrong. A neon red flag. You're absolutely correct there. So let's talk a little about Tom. Tom Michael Bray loved playing the trumpet. So this is dad? Yes. Okay. And he was very talented. After school, he joined a schoolmate's band that covered other bands like the Rascals and the Buckinghams. I guess that's the professional presentation. In truth, they, like other teenage boys, started and joined the band to get chicks and make money. (laughs) They played under various names, most notably Evergreen Blues. This cool little band that excelled at playing the blues got a record deal with Mercury Records and went on a national tour where they were pampered and spoiled with limos, clothes, women, and private jets. The boys were young, and this experience was heady. They found themselves billed along with Chuck Berry and the Righteous Brothers. That's pretty cool. Yes, they met some really famous people. They were the original artists who performed the song Midnight Confession. It received a little bit of airplay nationally, but became very popular in Florida. But then a fairly unknown band, The Grassroots, picked up the song. They played it almost nearly identically, and they became very famous. And these boys were not happy about that. But they continued writing their funky music when funky was a good thing, like Uptown Funk. 
<laughs> Otis Redding was their hero, as he was to many young band members in the 1960s. Otis Redding died in 1967 when his plane went down in the Great Lakes of Wisconsin. The boys covered his number one hit, Try a Little Tenderness, as a tribute to him the next year. But they gave it more of a rhythm and blues sound, and they had some fun with it. It was one of their signature songs as they opened for other young bands who were trying to make a name for themselves, and it came out on their Coming On album. The Coming On album was partially engineered by Three Dog Night's producer. Three Dog Night was young, an unknown band, and they were looking for their first hit. Their producer was said to have been inspired by that Coming On album, and Three Dog Night came out with their own rendition of Try A Little Tenderness. This version had a new rock sound. They cut it as their first record, and it became a mega hit. So they got scooped twice. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel so bad for them. It's bad luck. Right. The boys at Evergreen Blues were furious, and this began a huge controversy at the time. Three Dog Night denied this. They said they were the ones who came out with their version first. Well, Evergreen Blues later opened for Three Dog Night when they were famous, and their manager asked the boys not to play Try a Little Tenderness. But of course they ignored him, right? Right, they did. They played their version of the song. These guys were really talented musicians who never really got that big break that they seemed to have earned for a couple of other bands. And in the 70s, the, bo- and in the, 70s, the band evolved into what they called Elijah. And they shared playbills with the likes of Dr. Hook, Cheech and Chong, and still Chuck Berry, who walked out on his own concert and left Elijah to calm the angry crowd, which they did. They must have been good then. Yeah, they really were. You can find them on YouTube, actually. They caught the eye of Al Cooper while doing a permanent gig at Whiskey A Go-Go, and they were invited to join his label, which had also contracted Leonard Skinner. But at this point, Tom Bray ended his relationship with Elijah and moved on to other gigs. I couldn't find actual record of the actual dates that he did all of this, but I'm supposing this was the period of time when he was with Dixie and they were starting a family. He went on to play with Delaney Gibbs, who was Amy's godfather. That's the the second daughter. And he also played with the Electric Flag, Neil Young, as well as Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm jealous. (laughs) He later reunited with Elijah. After the separation, Tom kept in touch with his daughters even though his relationship with Dixie didn't work out the way they had planned. He loved his daughters and was proud of them. Okay, so maybe a little distant, but a warm relationship at least. Yes. So what about Amber herself? Well, Amber was kind of a quiet, low-key student who had really high grades in her honors classes. She impressed everyone, including her classmates. She was very, very bright but didn't like to go to school. And because she was so quiet, classmates often didn't remember her. The media likes to say that Amber was a cheerleader and an honor student at Burbank High School at the time of the murder, but she wasn't. She did make the cheerleading squad her freshman year at John Burroughs High School, but she kept to herself and didn't really fit in. Amber didn't seem to mind that she didn't have many friends. And eventually she quit the squad. 
By her junior year, Amber was an inveterate sluffer who was running along two paths. She had a group of friends from her church. It was a contemporary evangelical church that used to be called Toluca Lake Trinity Foursquare, but is now called Worship Walk, Hmm. and another older and edgier group of gamer friends. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Church friends and gamer friends? Right. She was fairly religious. She didn't do drugs. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. And her gamer friends were kind of on the wild side. They connected her to Jeffrey, which is the boy in this story. And this is where she spent the bulk of her free time. So she wasn't on top of the world with opportunities firmly in place. She was a kid who had made some bad choices regarding her schooling and didn't seem sure how she fit in the world or she knew and hadn't yet accepted it. Yeah, that's kind of a hard place to be. It really is. Well, now she's a senior at an alternative high school. She was transferred there in mid-October because of her truancies, about the same time she started to date Jeffrey. But she did come from a family that worked hard to position her well for her post-high school life, and this is where a lot of that shouting came from, was her sloughing. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually that's upsetting to parents. <laughs> Especially when they are seeing what it's doing to your future. Mm-hmm. So regardless, her sloughing continued. No one knows why she skipped school or what she did while she was gone. But the school was set to expel her, forcing her into adult GED classes. They were going to tell her on the day she was arrested for murder. But the police got there first. After an inexplicable string of boyfriends who made unlikely companions for her, Amber started seeing Jeffrey. She and Jeffrey, according to their friends, all of whom were older than Amber, said they were an unlikely pair. But she wanted stuff and was sure Jeffrey would help her get it. What kind of stuff? Like she wanted him to take her shopping? Um, stuff to go along with her dreams of living on her own with Jeffrey. She wanted a home in Riverside County. Oh, so not much. Just the most expensive county. Right, exactly. That's a lot to expect from a high school boyfriend. Mm. How old was he? He wasn't a high school boyfriend. She was in high school, but he was 21. Okay, that's still not very old to be buying a home in Riverside County. Not at all. She also wanted a flashy sports car and furniture. According to those dreamy notes that she sent to him, those are the things that she wanted. And together they were building a list of wedding invitees. It's a little quick. She's in high school. He's 21. And they met in October? Yeah. I mean, this is weeks after they've met. So she would laugh with her friends that she had a 100 guests that she wanted to invite, and Jeffrey only had a handful. Isn't it funny how these older guys who want to date high school girls usually don't have any friends? That's very true. A lot of them are just kind of drifting, which we're getting to that, but Jeffrey was very much drifting. It sounds like it. Yeah. Well, on this wedding invitation list, Amber's mother and Amy were conspicuously missing from that list. Huh. And their friends were surprised at the talk of marriage. Amber was telling them she and Jeffrey would marry soon after her 18th birthday. Her birthday came and went, and for the next 10 days, her friends wondered if this wedding was really going to take place. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't, but what was Jeffrey like? Well, Jeffrey Glenn Ayers was... An okay 21-year-old kid living an okay kind of life. He dropped out of high school and he loved gaming. And he was kind of a nerd boy. 
He loved playing Dungeons and Dragons, and before he met Amber, he and his friends would spend hours playing games at the video arcade, drinking coffee at the local hangouts, or directing long games at a shop that sold role-playing supplies. What's a long game? Um, a long game is like a historical role-playing game where everyone takes a role and oh. you play the game out. Oh, okay. Hmm. And then I guess the role-playing supplies, it was there because they could buy stuff. Interesting. So he never had any problems with the law and he never even had much of a job. He thought about joining the National Guard or the Marines, but he'd hurt his shoulder. And he lived with his mom rent-free at her house, so he only needed to worry about money for hanging out and transportation. He worked at McDonald's for a few weeks and even tried his hand at telemarketing for a bit. But after his grandma died, he was happy to just hang out and spend the money she'd left to him. He'd never really had a girlfriend either until Amber came along. According to Murderpedia, Amber was the first girl who had ever paid attention to him, and he was one smitten kitten. They had met at the mall through mutual friends, and after that, it was magic. He couldn't believe his luck. According to the LA Times, his friends said they were playful and very happy with each other. But theirs was a real inexplicable bond. No one could figure out what they had in common. But this was shaping up to be a very nice autumn for him. A love that blossomed in October quickly twisted into something else as Amber started chatting about plans of marriage and murder. So it's interesting that she moved so fast with someone who didn't seem, you know, facially compatible. Do you think that she saw this lonely boy and kind of had an idea in mind that she would need someone to help her with this? Like she picked him because... She felt like she could get him to do anything she wanted? Absolutely. We've seen this several times in our research. There's a group of female parasite offenders who suddenly show a strange pattern of dating a string of boys who are inappropriate for them. And this is what Amber's mom was seeing. Jeffrey wasn't the first inappropriate boy that she decided to like. These girls are looking for a hitman, to be quite frank. When you look closer, you see how Amber works to groom her new love to prepare him to murder her mother. If the boy balks at the idea, the girl breaks it off with him and moves on to the next bad boy until she finds a boy who is lonely and looking for love and affection like Jeffrey. Once the girl has her boyfriend on board with the murder, usually alleging non-existent abuse by the mother, as Amber did, she works to ensure her mother's death. If that boy hesitates, she most often threatens suicide as Amber did. Witnesses state she was screaming at him how miserable her life was and how her mom abused her when he seemed to take pause regarding the murder. So people saw her talking about committing suicide if he didn't kill her mom? Yes, they have a witness. That's crazy that she would be so bold. Well, it was with the skater friends. I don't think she really counted them as anything but extras in her life. Maybe. And while she will assist the boyfriend in the murder, these girls... She's careful not to actually commit the murder, which, as you'll see soon, Amber did. She thinks that because she didn't actually hold the knife or the gun, usually it's a knife with these girls when the murder is committed. Mm -hmm. The girl doesn't commit the murder. The boy commits the murder. The boy uses a knife. It's a pattern. But she thinks she can't be held responsible for the murder. 
Because she didn't physically commit the murder. Right. So she thinks that she's kind of tricked the boy into committing the murder, and now she's off the hook. But we call these girls booty bumpers because they exchange booty for the bumping off of their mothers. (laughs) They're a thing. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. I was thinking of a term. I'm not even sure this is a real term, but um, when people talk about narcissists, they talk about love bombing. When you meet someone and they immediately are like madly in love with you and super serious that's usually not a good sign because they don't even know you and she didn't know jeffrey right right and jeffrey didn't know her either and i'm not sure that she's a narcissist i really don't label these kids Mm -hmm. but it does look like love bombing was happening yeah so it's just interesting that i mean they were planning a wedding four weeks after they met Yeah, that's just crazy how fast they moved, and she's using a lot of fantasy here to build this idea of this future with just one little obstacle. And, of course, he needs to save her. Yeah, it started with a series of love letters in November of 1995 between Amber and Jeffrey. November of 1995 is pretty important because, if you remember, they met the beginning of October, Mm -hmm. and her mother is dead by January. Oh, wow, that's just so fast. Yes. Between assurances of love, they discussed how they would spend Dixie's insurance money. Remember, Dixie's her mother. Mm -hmm. From what Amber could figure, Dixie had $310,000 in insurance. That would be Amber's if her plan worked out. In today's dollars, that's approximately $527,640. This was the money that was being earmarked to fund their life together. All he had to do was kill Amber's mom and younger sister, and they'd be set. So a couple comments here. Um, Why did she know what her mom's life insurance policy was? I have no idea. I think that is so weird, but I've seen that a few times. I think that's a really good argument to not tell your children if you have life insurance. And that is one thing I would tell every parent. Never tell your children how much they're going to come into financially if you're dead. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing is... Why are they killing the younger sister, Amy? Well, she and Amy had problems, and Amy was older. Older than Benji, or just old? Older, like a teenager. Oh, okay. So I'm sure I'm sure she hadn't thought this through or didn't understand how it works, mm-hmm. because she saw Amy as a contender for that money, but oh. Benji was five. So she didn't see him as a contender. She didn't realize he would get half of the estate. Yeah, it doesn't matter how old they are. They're going to get their portion. Right. And I wondered if maybe she was just overly fond of Benji. But it looks like she fought with her mother because she never wanted to even take care of him. So I don't Um, think it was out of fondness that she was ignoring him. I think that she just thought he was so young he would get nothing. Huh. So in their twisted little minds, they think, oh, all we have to do is Kill your mom and your younger sister, and we'll be set for life. I think that's exactly what they were thinking. Anyway, one love letter started with this sweet nothing. Well, we read it earlier. What do you think of this? Someone breaks into the house, kills Amy and mom. I come to discover them. We call the police. No one hears anything. It's an unsolved homicide, and we're free. And what did Jeff think of that? He said, and this is a quote, I like it. He was dreaming of studying psychology while she modeled. 
he really thought he'd gotten himself a hot girl without even trying. I think it's interesting that he wants to study psychology. As he murders his girlfriend's mother and sister, I thought that was very ironic. Yeah, I think he should start with his own case. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Amber and Jeffrey talked constantly on the phone, like kids used to do back then. But instead of planning dates and sharing their days, Amber continued to steer their conversation in darker directions, as evidenced by many of the things Jeffrey would write to her later in his love letters. Despite a glaring lack of abuse, she told him her mother was abusing her and that she just couldn't take it anymore. For example, he wrote, I meant what I said on the phone. Your mother and sister will trouble you no more. That is always so interesting to me in these kinds of cases when the girl says, I'm being horribly abused, so abused that I'm going to kill myself if I don't, if you don't kill my parent. But there's no evidence that she's being abused. He's dating her. He's often intimate with her. And there are no bruises. There's no strange absences from school. There's no... Other than the sloughing, right? Well, yeah, she's choosing to slough, but um, there's just very few of the signs of abuse or any physical evidence of abuse. I agree, and you do see this time and time again. It's very, very concerning. There are certain types of kids that actually claim abuse. And if our listeners want to hear again about the five different types of parasite offenders, they should go back to the second part of Herman and Drew Dutton and mm-hmm. listen to that. There are some kids who allege abuse because they think it's going to get them off or it's going to get them what they want. In the case of love, I think it's really easy for a boy who thinks he's in love to just take her at her word Mm -hmm. but they did because they were talking about abuse and alleging abuse there was an in-depth post-death investigation that revealed there was absolutely no abuse going on in this household it was all fabricated by amber to set jeffrey against dixie and amy this wasn't a utopian household though it wasn't filled with perfection according to amy there was the typical teenage angst going on The mom was mad because she was sloughing. We had arguments about curfews, chores, whether she had to watch her younger brother. Additionally, Amber's choice of boyfriend was causing contention between the two of them. The LA Times interviewed their neighbor who told them Amber and her mother's relationship was devolving. So the neighbor could see it, even though the mom kind of couldn't. Mm -hmm. They had begun arguing frequently and over seemingly silly things. For example, Amber became enraged one afternoon when her mom asked her to go to the store to get a bottle of aspirin. Okay, so she just was mad at her mom over everything. Yes. But I see a lot of parents of teenagers frustrated because their teen suddenly seems to hate them for no reason. Mm-hmm. So I can see why her mom would go, well, maybe this is just normal. Well, I have wondered if Dixie ran across some of these love letters because the neighbor also reported that Dixie knew her life was in danger. There was the regular teenage angst that was going on, and all families go through that somewhat. But in the weeks before the murder, Dixie had confided in her neighbor that she was afraid of Amber, and she told her that she'd recently drawn up her will. Interestingly, the neighbor also mentioned that Dixie was not just unhappy with Amber's choice of Jeffrey as a boyfriend. Get this. 
She was concerned because Amber had recently had a string of bad boyfriends. They were very confused. Well, that makes sense because Amber wasn't having a string of bad boyfriends. Amber was hunting among the mm, more downtrodden boys she could find to find someone who would murder her mom for her. She was a classic booty bumper. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a huge red flag that most parents wouldn't see. They just go, geez, why does she suddenly have horrible taste? And mm -hmm. That's exactly it. Unless you know about it, you can't see it, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about it. Anyway, the prosecuting attorney didn't understand what he was seeing as far as seeing a booty bumper, but he did seem to sum it up best at one of their many motion hearings. He said, and this is a quote, I think the bottom line is that this defendant is a very smart, shrewd young woman who got her boyfriend to kill her mother as part of a conspiracy to collect the benefits of her mother's estate. That is a great summary. Absolutely. And what Amber didn't understand was this. If you create a plan to murder your mother and you get your boyfriend or some other hitman to do the dirty work for you, because this boy is a hitman, mm -hmm. you are still guilty of first-degree murder, just like you did it. Even if you never even touch the murder weapon, you are most likely going to prison and serving the very same sentence as your hitman. Which is fair. Yeah. And I know from previous cases we've looked at but haven't published yet, it used to be different. And even now it sometimes doesn't happen this way, but most of the time that's how it goes. If you get someone to kill your parents, even if you don't touch the gun or more often the knife, you're still guilty. Right. And if you look in the local media, you will see some of these booty bumpers that have been missed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there were actually a lot of love letters available for the trials because Amber and Jeffrey wrote so many of them. And as you know, they're not really typical love letters. I think it's funny that they were called the love letters, but there's no love in them. Beyond me. Yes, you're right. Anyway, the investigators say that Jeffrey fell head over heels in love and wanted the happy future that Amber was painting in her love letters. She inspired him to dream and have hope for his future. And that's pretty much how they do it. They hook on to the dreams and the hopes of the boy. Mm -hmm. They're a cute girl, and he's head over heels. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's going to end up with a smart, pretty cheerleader girl, and together they would get the cool house in the posh neighborhood, the flashy car, all the money, and all he had to do was kill Dixie and Amy first. It's funny because to me, the cost of having to murder two people would not be worth getting a house and a car, especially when you don't have a job to maintain it. And that's what we all hope, that a person actually will be like. That shows that you are a good person. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I think for most people, they would go, that is too expensive, but um, not Jeffrey. That's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> On January 15th, Jeffrey bought a gun from his friend. 
and next week we'll tell you exactly what went down at the Bray home on the morning of January 16th. And we'll tell you exactly how Amber thought she had figured out how to get away with murder. Thanks for listening, and we hope you learned something. Feel free to join our discussions on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter using Parasite Podcast, or by writing to us at ParasitePodcast at Parasite.org. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe to the Parasite Podcast and tell your friends about us. Yes, please do. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and Murderpedia, John Steinman and the LA Times, Law and Issues mailing list, the San Diego Union Tribune, and Rock Asteria for a variety of information and photos we used for this show. You can see photos at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. And if you want to hear the Evergreen Blues rendition of Midnight Confessions, I encourage you to go to YouTube. We didn't put it on our website, but it is amazingly like what the grassroots played. I know. I could hardly tell the difference. I know. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye for now. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.